Hello and welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast. I'm your host, Ben James, and I am joined by Matthew Southcombe and Simon Thomas to go over all the weekend's rugby action. Not a fantastic weekend in terms of Welsh rugby. European rugby quarterfinals, two defeats for the Welsh regions. They're out of Europe. So let's let's start with that then, lads. The Dragons lost to Bristol Bears on Friday night, and the Scarlets lost in Toulon on Saturday night. As I say, not a great weekend. Um, let's start with Friday night. Simon, you were covering the match. No, no, let's start first of all with the fact that we have vision so I can see that fantastic beard that you are now sporting. <laughs> the listeners are missing out because literally it is like the wild man of the Rockies. I have to say, fair play, you know. This double year for myself, Mr. Southcombe, but that is caveman top number one. Well done. As for the rugby, yeah, I covered the Dragons game at the weekend on Friday night. Just before we came on air, Matt used the phrase reality check, and I think there was a bit of that. Um, it was the result you expected when you looked at the two teams in terms of the winner and loser. I think the scale and the margin of the defeat was the disappointment, especially given it started really well. I mean, 19 minutes on the clock, it was still 10-0 to... Uh, the Dragons certainly had the better of the, of the first opening quarter. Um but then three tries in the space of five minutes, and that was really the game gone away from them. And the thing that was probably the biggest disappointment was the fragility of the defence. Um, they were unpicked with you know, uncommon ease. Yes, they were unpicked by world-class players, the likes of Radrada and Charles Pieto, and what well, Callum Sheedy was pulling the strings expertly, but they won't be very pleased with some of the, the defensive lapses there organisation-wise. And... Um, it was unfortunate, really, the, the final cluster of tries as well that made it really look a pretty horrible scoreline. And, uh, yeah, it was a, a sobering experience, as I described it on Friday, and I think that's certainly the case. I think if you look at the uh, if you look at the Dragons as well, though, and Simon's touching on it in a piece today, I, I assume, you know, obviously, look at the way the preparation the two teams have had. Bristol have obviously been flat out week in, you know, playing two games a week for the last how many weeks? And, and the Dragons have had two games and then they've had a couple of weeks off um, you know, I think that it was a recipe for disaster in many ways um, even if the Dragons were going in you know battle hard and you'd you'd put them you know 20 points down you know give them a 20 point head start sorry um, and you'd probably still expect Bristol to come back um, so you look at the preparation they've had it's not ideal um, but like Simon said you, you would have expected them to probably put up a bit more of a fight than when the floodgates opened and, and it did get a bit ugly. You know, Bristol started scoring at will, um, you know, emptied the bench as well. Um, but I think, you know, there has been a lot of, you know, good good publicity at the Dragons. I don't, I'm not saying that people have got ahead of themselves um, there, but I think this will have brought them back down to earth slightly and, and perhaps made everyone realise that, you know, that gulf in, in class that you know does exist at the end of the day that was you know one of the best sides in England um you know I think it was a bit of a reality check um and I think Dean Ryan can use it to sort of you know probably yeah bring people back down to earth a bit and say okay you know we've done a lot of good stuff we've made some good sign-ins that's what we need to aspire to be um and at the moment we're we're at least 40 points behind it I think the thing is um with hindsight, and I said this in the piece I've written today, maybe there was a case for the Dragons and Scarlets arranging a warm-up match against themselves the week beforehand, you know, because they did go three weeks without playing and um, inevitably 
going to take you a little bit of time to get up to speed. The irony is the Dragons actually hit the ground running and then mm-hmm. fell away. So whether that's match fitness or anything, but there is there are basics to it as well. you got one of the biggest spending English clubs against the team that's got one of the lowest playing budgets in the, in the Pro 14. Um, but it was, as many people had said, possibly the strongest Dragons team that's been put out maybe in the last seven or eight years. Um, but when they were pushed and stretched and strained by some world-class players, defensively, they, they just weren't able to live with it. And it did become, it, it became an awkward evening for them. Um, as you say, there's a lot to be learned from it. But I think above all, it, it's a realisation that although there's been progress, there remain a work in progress. What was interesting listening to Dean Ryan and Aaron Wainwright speak last week in, in the pre-match press conference, and they said similar things ahead of the Scarlets game, was they knew going into this game there was going to be no surprises from Bristol. They knew there was going to be sort of periods of the match where Bristol are going to do things that they just couldn't live with, and it's how you hold on those situations. And Dean Ryan felt fairly confident that the Dragons could hold on when the Brist- Bristol step up a few gears. He thought they could because he thought they did a decent job of that in the first uh, in the second derby against the Scarlets, even though the Scarlets did sort of run away with it in the end. He felt the Dragons did a good job holding on in those sort of purple patches. I don't know whether, it, it, does, does the fact that Bristol sort of started the game so, so lethargic and the Dragons caught them on the hop, does that maybe play into the fact then of why the Dragons maybe didn't sort of hold in? When Bristol did click it up a few gears, I just they were think, totally blown I, away. Yeah, they were. Yeah, they were just up against the superior side in that period. I think um, maybe there was an element of complacency from Bristol in the opening quarter. Possibly, you don't know about the mindset, but basically, to me, as soon as Rodrada started to weave his magic, and that's the Dragons won't be the only team to suffer through that. Let's be honest, but no. you know. We're just very privileged to have him playing in the in the British Isles at the moment, and um, yeah, they couldn't live with him. Um, the moment when he um, offloaded to Ben Earl, I think it was for the third try to lose count at that point. That was just a moment of magic. But and his finish as well, Rodrada, um, you just kind of felt with him that once it was a one-on-one situation, it was unfair on the on the other one. If you know what I mean. And you'd hate to be in Rodri Williams' situation there with Rodrada got 20 metres to run at you. And, but uh, credit as well for Callum Sheedy for showing that Rodrada wasn't the only one who could produce sleight of hand because that was lovely work by him to put the Fijian into space. And I, I think it's uh, certainly worth, on a positive Welsh perspective, hopefully a Welsh one, to talk about Mr Sheedy. Indeed, obviously, Wayne Pivak was watching on. He was talking to Pat Lam after the game. And I think your assessment certainly is that... Um, He'll, he'll have some thinking to do when it comes to whether Sheedy's involved in the autumn. I mean, Callum's a very talented player. I mean, I, I first saw him play probably 15, 16 year old when he was playing for Corpus Christi. Played in, you know, Corpus Christi didn't have a huge rugby tradition to them in recent years, but he guided them to the final of the Welsh Schools Cup. Ironically enough, um, a certain Tyler Morgan playing for Caerleon in the opposition. And he was clearly from an early age someone who had huge talent um mark ring's brother actually coached him at st peter's and you talk to ringo now we used to see a few of the games and he i remember him saying to me at the time that you know, there was a special young talent um callum then sort of when it all became a bit too serious i think that can happen sometimes when you're a kiddie when you are you know the, the player that everything hinges on 
and you know rugby can become very serious at a very young age for a very for very talented players. I think he just wanted to go and enjoy rugby again. Went to Mill, Millfield, great, great, fantastic opportunities. He said to me one time, "You're playing on the Gareth Edwards pitch. What more, what more can you ask for?" You know, and gradually built and built his um, reputation there. Got a contract with Bristol, trod the boards out on loan, and has just developed and grown into a really assured player, one of the most consistent performers in the English Premiership. The question is, if Wales do come knocking, which is a possibility. What will he say? Uh, only Billy Callum himself can can answer that at the moment. But if you look at the fact that Gareth Anscombe is remains on the long term injured list, Owen Williams is no longer eligible, another uh, fly half option having gone to Japan. Reese Patchell hasn't played since the World Cup. You add all these things in. Obviously, you've got Sam Davis and and um, you've also got Jared Evans in the mix. But there has to be a strong case and a strong argument for Wales making that call to Callum Sheedy, and then it's up to him. Indeed, um, I, don't, I don't know what your thought, thoughts are on this, Matt. Yeah, you know, obviously people forget. I think that Sheedy's been on Bristol's books for a long time and has has come through, you know, from the championship with them. I always remember watching his, his, the early days of his career there, and I was waiting for, almost for Bristol to outgrow him. And it was always a case of, oh, they've made all these signings now. You know, perhaps now they're going to try and ease him out, and he's going to have to make his way somewhere else. Um, but he's always. He's been a constant there um, for the last few years, and I've always been impressed by that. And I think that's a sign that you know Pat Lamb definitely sees something in him. Um, and I think it's really impressive that he's managed to keep his place here. Now, obviously, as a regular starter at fly half, and you look at the players who he's controlling. I know it's easy to look good around you know out of this world talent like Radradra, but at the end of the day, you know they don't. Someone's got to guide the ship and someone's got to steer the ship. Um, and if you're a bad fly half, um, it would show. And, you know, he is bossing these players around, looking at people like Stephen Luatua, All Black, Carl Sinclair, uh, you know, well-respected, you know, English international type dead. You know, he's the fulcrum for, for a side that includes so much talent. Um, and it's such a successful side now as well um, that I think ultimately someone is going to come knocking for him. You know, I think Wales should. Um, I think they will. Uh, and like Simon said, it is, it's entirely up to him then what he decides to do. Obviously, he was, uh, has played for England in that Barbarians game, which was uncapped. Um, I just think for his point of view as well now, it's about time that he sort of nailed his colours to the mast as well. You know, we, he pulled out of that Wales in the 20s team a few years ago not to commit himself. Um, you know, we've all bigged him up at various points in the last few years um, and it's always been you know what will he do kind of situation um, it would be good to, to finally get that decision um, but I suppose somebody has to approach him first um, so I think Wales at the end of the day if you look at it is he better than uh, Sam Davis and Jared Evans um, I think it's tight but I think you could argue he's better than Sam Davis at the moment um, I, I don't think it's fair to compare the two based on what we saw on Friday night because of the you know the respective teams that were on show and and the points we've just discussed. Um, but I think he's got a case for being better than Jared Evans as well. Um, although I think you know I, I think Jared would have something to say about that. Um, so there's there's very much a possibility that he could be called up as the third choice fly half. Um, good position for Wayne Pivak to be in, but I think you'd want to cap him. Um, 
just to make sure that England don't or somebody or Ireland even don't. I know Callum quite well. He go back and um, spoken to him quite a few times over the years, on on and off the record. Um, people say to me, "Oh, but does he want to play for Wales?" There's, <clears throat> there's a couple of things there. He obviously has to be asked first. Um, England asked him to play for them, albeit in a cap match, and he went with that. He hasn't had. He hasn't been asked to our knowledge as of yet to be in a Wales senior squad. When he gets asked that, he has to make a decision. I've often asked him, you know, what will you do? What will you do if the decision is uh, presented to you? And he's uh, always said, I'll cross that bridge when I come to it, which I think is quite ironic because he actually would have to cross the bridge to <laughs> do with Wales. He's, he's very inscrutable, Callum. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, I think he knows when I'm trying to ask him the question. And, he, and you know, he, he's basically kept his options open because. Not only is eligible for England on residency in Wales by birth, but he's also eligible through grandparents for Ireland. So I think the Irish one is is a less likely one because they essentially don't pick players based outside of the Emerald Isle. So it comes down to England and Wales, whose respective national coaches were at Ashton Gate on Friday. In terms of form, amongst the available fit and in-form fly halves, he should be in the Wales squad. He should be asked to come into the Wales squad. Um, let's see what happens then. You'll we'll have to wait and see what Wayne Pivak does. Um, I suppose the final point on the Dragons is we talked a lot about how it was a reality check for the team as, as a whole. I suppose there was probably reality checks for a couple of individuals in this game, wasn't there, Matt? Uh, potentially. Um, you know, I, I think... I'm not sure reality check is maybe the right word, but you look at somebody like... Um, Jamie Roberts making his debut, Jonah Holmes making his debut, Nick Tompkins with all the, the fanfare that that signing brought. Um, you know, ultimately when the pressure came on, there was little that those kinds of players could do to stop it. Um, you know, I know Bristol added some tries late on, which really made it look ugly, but the damage was done really in that period in the first half where Bristol decided to turn up and scored three tries in something like five minutes and totally spin the game on its head. Um, you know, from that point onwards, the momentum was with Bristol, and you look into people like Jamie Roberts and Nick Tompkins in midfield then to try and pull rabbits out of hats. Um, and they couldn't, uh, essentially, and they couldn't get a foothold in the game. You know, the Dragons forward pack, um, particularly in the back row, um, you're looking at those guys, Ross Moriarty, to, to get you on the front foot, and they couldn't. Um, so that's that would be a slight concern for me um, because the Dragons are going to have times, despite the players they've got, the Dragons will always have times in the games where they're on the back foot um, and you bring in somebody like Jamie Roberts to get you back on the front foot uh, and he simply couldn't do it um, on Friday night. So I think those that's something, and don't get me wrong, it, it, there may be ways of making this work Ian Ryan, you know, is going to, the more the more he works with this side, the better they'll become. Um, but you know, you sign those players for for your big matches and the big moments in those matches, and and ultimately the Dragons lost most of those moments on Friday night. I think um, from a uh, Tompkins's perspective, um, it was quite a tough um, outing. Um, if you look at the first. Bristol try, it came from a, a loose-ish kick from him in, in, in midfield, which Pieto rang back and 
that ultimately led to the Nathan Hughes try. And then for the first, I think it was the first Ben Earl try, um, he just got a little bit narrow and it ended up with Rodrada put outside him. Um, makes me think possibly when we're looking at Tompkins, certainly for the autumn, I, I think I, I tend to like him more at 12 than at 13. In terms of the defensive organisation of 13, you know, you've got an absolute master of that in Jonathan Davis. And I think the creativity and footballing skills of Tompkins inside in that to me looks looks a, a good match. And I, I have tended to prefer Tompkins when he's won 12. And, but as we say, you know, they don't come much tougher in terms of outside the centre examinations and playing against uh, the, the, the semi-Rodrada, let alone the full Rodrada we saw the weekend. That was the point I was sort of going to get onto is, is the fact that I think Tompkins moving forward is is a twelve, isn't he? I don't think thirteen is is really his position. I know he is capable of playing sort of both positions. I know if you have got Jamie Roberts, he's going to play thirteen. But I think from a defensive standpoint, and we saw that in the Six Nations, didn't we? Actually, with the the game in Ireland when Wales were really caught on the hop defensively in that first half, I, I'm not sure that maybe Tompkins is the best sort of defender of the thirteen channel. While I think twelve. He's much more suited defending there. Yeah, hence Henshaw really targeted him in Dublin, didn't he? Yeah. And uh, I think, you know, when teams recognising his strengths will also recognise potential little weaknesses as well. And that's, that's the challenge. I mean, although he's made a fantastic entry in the international stage, he's still a rookie in international terms, isn't he? And he's going to develop. I mean, I mean, in terms of the Dragons, I mean, they're probably not going to see an awful lot more of him, are they, realistically? And uh, but yeah, it was. Um, I enjoyed covering the game because it was very entertaining, and it's a joy to watch Bristol play. Um, and as for the Dragons, I think it's also shown up there are still areas of that squad that, that quite badly need strengthening. I suppose moving forward, obviously, you expect both these. Well, the Dragons are in the Champions Cup next year. You'd expect Bristol to to, to get in there one way or another. It's going to be more of an education, isn't it, for the Dragons after after Friday night? This is what they, they can expect now. Yeah, it's going to be a tough campaign, that. Um, make no bones about it. You know, you're going to be playing against teams of, of the quality of, of Bristol, right? you know, in pretty much every pool game. There's no easy games in that competition. Uh, it's great for the for the region to to be amongst, you know, Europe's elite. You just hope that, you know, you can get the fans back in sooner or later to enjoy those games and, and make them great occasions because undoubtedly those, you know, on, under normal circumstances, those games would be, you know, bringing in bigger crowds than we've been accustomed to seeing at Rodney Parade down the years. And it would be fantastic to see, uh, you know, the ground selling out or, or getting close to it. And, you know, the, the fans coming in and making a racket like they do and are making it a tough place uh, to come and play. Um, so you just hope that the fans can get in and enjoy it. It'll be a great experience for, for the region. Um, you know, there won't be much expectation placed on them. Um, you know, they can go in with the shackles off and, and just try and enjoy it and play some rugby. Uh, but the trouble is you don't want to be embarrassed. Um, you know, so it's going to be tough. It'll be a great learning experience for a few of the players um, who aren't the, the sort of regular internationals. Uh, but ultimately, that's going to be a very difficult campaign if, if Friday night is anything to go by. The one thing they do have is because of the truncated nature of Europe. If it does go badly, it's only four games. It's not as if you've got you know, six weeks of pummeling after pummeling. And you would expect probably with two of those be- games being at home, they'd be 
more competitive of Rodney Parade if we have fans back by then. I mean, this is the yeah. funny. This is not well, not funny. This is the thing, isn't it? I mean, you know, when we've done previous podcasts, like in July and August time, we've all kind of thought that come November, December, we start to see crowds back. But you don't see crowds back in, you know, we just today had the, the new news about further lockdowns in, in various areas of Wales. And you do really start to wonder when, whether we're going to see any crowds at matches in Wales this year. Um, it's a difficult, difficult time. On that note, let's move on to the second game of the weekend. Um, a team probably more experienced of being at the higher echelons of European rugby, the Scarlets, they faced Toulon. Um and I think it's well, the third time they've been out in Toulon in, in recent years and lost by by one score out of the Stad Felix Mail. Oh, mate, they're, they're going to be kicking themselves, ultimately, the Scarlets. Look, going out there, I didn't fancy them without Reese Patchell, Jonathan Davis and Liam Williams. I thought that if you had two out of those three on your side, you'd probably fancy them to win. But to have none of them, I thought, was probably too much. Um, but again, they've gone out there and you know, at half time, realised that they that Toulon are beatable. Uh, Toulon were, were not great, to be honest with you. Um, but the Scarlets themselves made too many errors, and, and discipline was a real issue. I think it was sixteen penalties they gave away uh, throughout the match, which is too much when you're away from home in Europe, especially you know down there. Uh, but but the game was there to be won again, you know, as it was last year. You know, they lost in the last minute last year. It wasn't the same, but it wasn't far off this year. And they probably should have won both games. Um, you know, I thought the Scarlets did everything right in terms of um, defensively, they were pretty solid. Uh, they got in Toulon's face and and Toulon always looked threatening, like they could blow the game open at any minute. Um, but the Scarlets were, were desperate in defence um, and caused real issues like they did last year. And they, they were taking their chances by and large until the last sort of few minutes. Uh, and then, you know, Tyler Morgan drops it going over the line. You know, that's a huge, huge opportunity missed. Um, you know, there, there are different elements in the game that we can discuss, but ultimately Toulon took their, their chance when it came. Uh, brilliant try scored, uh, you know, with a quick tap and the offloads. But ultimately... You know the Scarlets will feel like they should, they could, and probably should have won that game. And I think if they had Liam Williams, Reese Patchell, or Jonathan Davis in their side, that would probably be the difference between them winning and losing. So it's a tough one for the Scarlets to take, and and they'll be kicking themselves because they they should be probably celebrating a famous win. It, it really is a missed opportunity because <clears throat> if you look at it, they had the means to win that game, um, and if they had won it. They'd be up against Leicester in the semi-finals, with Leicester having gone through on a in a walkover because of Castro's COVID issues, and Leicester haven't been great this season. I'd have fancied the Scarlets against them, and then once you're into the final, could have been a cracker against, say, Bristol. You know that would have been brilliant. Something really to look forward to. Wasn't to be. Why wasn't it to be? Well, to me, it's the classic case of the narrow margins in 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 big knockout games. You mentioned the. Um, Tyler Morgan just losing control of the ball. He's going to the line. That was a spillage that cost them a try of their own. And if you look back at Parise's try, it all stemmed from a moment where the Scarlets were on the attack. Um, Blade Thompson, who otherwise had a good game, I thought, just unable to hold yeah. on to the ball, went loose to Toulon do what they'd actually done once before and they had tried to sell out. They'd shown the threat. Um, they, they got the try that essentially won them the game. 
And they, they, in fairness, Toulon played more rugby. Now, I think that was, to an extent, constrained or in terms of the Scarlets because they were missing three of their absolute key backs in Jonathan Davis-Patchell and Liam Williams. And I think that did you know, restrict their attacking threat. But if you look at it, I think it was three or four times in the last five minutes they had attacking lineouts in the Toulon 22. And that's the difference in their Exeter teams like that, Munster in their pomp, Leinster. They score from those situations and they win the game. It just didn't quite click. I think there's a lot to be taken out of the forward performance by the Scarlets. I thought it was excellent. Um, you know, if you look at the, 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 when we've gone to France, Welsh teams have gone to France in the past, they've often just been beaten up up front, not just in France, but in other big European games. That was a big Toulon pack. Not the great Toulon side of, the, of previous years, but still a very strong one. And the Scarlets more than held their own up front, um, but just didn't, just didn't quite have the, the cutting edge in the key moments, you know. And I think they will, they will live to rue that one a lot more, you know. And it was, it was, if you look at it, the closest of all seven matches that were played. Obviously, one was called off. It was the tightest game. Um, they, it was the best effort by probably by a Pro 14 team out of the five who lost. And it was one that got away. And yeah, Glenn Delaney, knowing Glenn, he will be uh, proud of the effort, but frustrated by some of the, the detail. And I think the penalty comes to 16, you said, Martin, it's, it's just too many, isn't it? You know, and um, yeah, it was a frustrating watch that was on Saturday night. In many ways, what you described there, you know, forwards on top and yet the backs probably lacking the cutting edge is probably the inverse of what we've, of what the Scarlets have always been associated with, isn't it? Usually the backs are, are able to find the cutting edge, even if, even if the forwards have struggled and, and their past European defeats, they, they, it's, they've been bullied in the forward. You think of the Bath game in, in, in Parker Scarlets, the Leinster semi-final. So the fact that they went out to Toulon and not only got par- parity up front, but, you know, possibly got on top. Probably just it makes it all the more frustrating, doesn't it? The fact that the, the backs couldn't find any cutting edge. I know the players missing, and could it be argued that maybe Reese Patchell, obviously Jonathan Davis and Liam Williams are massively sort of great international players, but was Reese Patchell maybe the most missed player? I, I, I think there's a lot of Scarlet fans who have doubts over whether Dan Jones can get the same out of a backline that Reese Patchell, even Angus O'Brien can. Yeah, it's frustrating with Reese, isn't it? Because he obviously had um, the shoulder surgery after the World Cup, got over that, was back in training. And I think it's um, a calf issue he's had in recent weeks, which is just, Glenn Denny was talking about it and described it as a niggly thing. It's just, again, a frustration that he couldn't quite make it, you know. And even last week, Delaney was talking about Jonathan Davis of the three being the one who had a chance. And again, not quite ready. It's it just came that game probably just came a fortnight too soon, didn't it? You know, we talk about the three weeks off, but ironically, they could have probably done with five weeks off to get everyone fit. But hey, listen, it, it, ultimately, it's it's gone now, and they have to prepare for next season. I think the, the encouraging thing from the Scarlet's perspective is that in terms of the squad strength, the squad depth which is going to be put to the test more than ever with all the international matches coming up. I think they're quite well set there because although they'll probably have double figures, numbers of players in the Welsh squad, they do have the depth now to compete. A lot of the what you would call the first squad players, you know, people like Califamone coming in, you know, um, that's, I think he's been a big plus. And 
you got Josh McLeod and James Davis. Neither of them are guaranteed being in the Wales squad, you know, so they do have that strength. Um, and I think they'll be okay for next season. Uh, but what you do need, as you rightly say, when you come up to those big European games, that's when you do ideally need to have your A team players available. And just two or three of them being missing was costly at the weekend. Absolutely. Um, anything more to add on, on the defeat? Obviously, just it's just frustration, is it? It's just it's just a missed opportunity. I don't think we can uh, progress before mentioning the the half penny stuff. Um, no, there's there's some good and bad here. Yeah, obviously, the the tackle um, on the too long fullback in the first half was one of the best tackles I've ever seen in my life. Um, Line at, at his mercy, really. Half penny had to cover forty meters on his own, um, and two too long attackers, and the way he just covered the ground and the surface was horrendous but the way he got across the turf and just absolutely lassoed this too long fullback and dragged him down short of the line um, and then got up again uh, to, to join the defensive efforts straight after was absolutely unbelievable and it was textbook half penny people have compared it to the Warburton tackle on uh, Tuolangi a few years ago <sighs> I would uh, you could make a good case for this being better than that tackle uh, in my opinion. You think so? Um, yeah. Well, just because of the ground he had to cover to get there, the ground he had to cover to make, that, that's a try all day long. Half, Walton and Tuolangi were pretty square. Play, playing um, devil's advocate for a second. Um, obviously, it was two on fullback, wasn't it? It was Daniel Ipifan. He was a winger by trade. Yeah. Any winger worth their salt should be carrying the ball in the right hand so he's got the left hand to fend off there. He's carrying the ball in the wrong hand. <laughs> I don't see how that makes the tackle any worse. Like he I, I still just, needs to just, make just, the tackle. Just playing devil's advocate, if you know. No, just the, could, uh, the he could have done more to, to avoid the tackle there. The movement that was required was, was more unbelievable. Pertinent. More pertinent point. It was a two-on-one. Yeah, <laughs> you shouldn't have. You know, you should have ball should have gone. It was a fantastic lasso by Halfpenny. Absolutely brilliant. I I think it's probably on a par with Warburton's. I wouldn't like to choose between the two of them. I think they're both fantastic in slightly different ways. Um, but as Matt said, the one you know, as wonderful as that was, the worry is that, that in another tackle, got his head slightly in the wrong place and came off with a HIA, given his background, the issues he's had in the past is a concern. So every finger and every toe crossed that it's not a major thing and that we'll see him back in a few weeks' time because that just showed why he remains arguably the best defensive fullback in world rugby. Indeed. And the other injury was obviously Johnny McNichol, which again... It didn't look very nice at all, that. didn't look good. No, he looked in a lot of pain, uh, McNichol. Um, good news that he was able to sort of limp off and didn't require the stretcher, had the physios helping him, but you know, I, I don't hold out a great deal of hope um, for McNichol uh, in the short term. It... He was just the too long player just sort of fell on him awkwardly, um, and he was in a lot of pain. You could tell. Um, so I, you know, I, I'm not optimistic there. Um, obviously, we haven't heard anything from the Scarlets uh, in terms of any update because there was no press conference after the match. Um, so we, we're not sure what the state of those two guys are. But you, know, you touched on Halfpenny as well. I interviewed him when he made his comeback from his last concussion, the the, the serious one, the Kuradrani incident, and he talked about it, what he went through. You know, it it he went through the ringer coming back from that last concussion, um, 
and you just you know anytime he gets one now you just gotta have some concern Simon talked about getting his head in the wrong place we've seen it from him before in terms of his technique um, now you remember the damn bigger tackle on Kuradrani again in the World Cup um, which resulted in bigger going off for a HIA and not returning got his head in totally the wrong place there but saved a try I remember texting that night uh, another player who's played at the top level in the Pro 14 saying great tackle but there's got to be worry about his technique and the response was that if Bigger tackled him with his right shoulder then Kuradrani would have scored there's no way he would have stopped him so the only way to stop him is to put your body in the way of him and that's what Bigger did I'm not saying that's what Halfpenny did on this instance but it's worrying to me that that is the mindset sometimes is that I can can use proper tackle technique but I know I'm not going to stop this guy so essentially, I'm just going to put my put my head in the way, you know. So that I'm not saying that's what Halfpenny has done in this instance. Although I think we've seen it from him in the past when he's making try saving tackles. There was one against England a few years ago that sticks in my memory. I can't remember who it was, was against. Was it Luther Burrell? I want to say Burrell. Yeah, I think um, it was Luther Burrell. But you know, like you said, we've seen this from Halfpenny before. Maybe he's not comfortable tackling with certain shoulders. I don't know what his medical history is in terms of any shoulder injuries that he's had. I'm sure he's had some. Um, but look, it's a concern. We hope he's all right um, because you know, like Simon said, you, know, you just wish him all the best because he's been through it before. Indeed, that's something that we'll have to sort of keep tracks on, and hopefully, it'll all be okay for the autumn. Um, I suppose. Speaking about Europe on a, on a wider point, I know, Simon, you're doing a piece on this today, which will probably be online by the time this podcast goes up. Um, been a lot of sort of talk about the lack of success for the Pro 14 this weekend. Uh, no teams in the semifinals. And it, it's sort of being knocked now, isn't it, as is, is, is the reason why no teams have progressed beyond the quarterfinals, the league itself. It's, inter- it's interesting because, you know... Uh, you can look at it now, or you can look over a number of years. If you if you think back to the, you know, the, the previous three um, Heineken Champions Cups, there were two, three, and two Pro 14 teams in their semi-finals. So you've got none this time. It's actually the first time since 1998 that there's been no, if you like, Celtic League type team in in either of the two semi-finals. That's how. That's, you know, how kind of seismic and historic it is in terms of the stats. But as I say, the three previous years, they were they were the dominant force when it came to the knockout stages of the Champions Cup. So, you know, if you didn't, if you said to people, don't make knee-jerk reactions on those results, don't make them on this one. And what people in the past were saying, what those who sort of took issue with criticism of the Pro 14 in the past have said, hey, hang on a second. Look at them when, when we look at the results when they play English teams in Europe. They consistently beat them. So much for the English league being superior. Now, of course, my counter-argument to that has always been, the issue has been you mustn't confuse the teams that play in the leagues with the leagues themselves because you very rarely see those European strength sides competing in the Pro 14. And that is one of the drawbacks of it, say, compared to the, the Gallagher Premiership where teams generally are closer to full strength more often. So if you can't make judgment too much in the past results, perhaps you shouldn't make it too much of now. But there are lots of things you can look at in terms of the reasons why this happened, kind of issues. 
you've, first of all, you've got the, the match fitness, the game time. But again, there's, there's different arguments. You could certainly say with the Welsh team is not having played for three weeks, that probably wouldn't have helped them. But then you look at Ulster and Toulouse, for example. Ulster have had four inter-provincial Pro 14 matches going into this weekend, just gone, including the final and the semi-final of the playoffs. Toulouse have only had two league matches in six months. They're only just back after you know the previous Pro four, uh, Top 14 was scrapped. So in terms of match fitness and game time, you'd think Ulster were better prepared, and yet it was a very much one-way traffic, that match. So it, there's no hard and fast definite thing on it. Then you look at the, the player budgets. Yeah, there were examples where that is pertinent. As I say, if you look at the Dragons in Bristol, there's a few million pounds between them. Again, Toulouse and Ulster, a few million pounds between them. But then there are other examples. Leinster, who have one of the biggest playing budgets in Europe, somewhere between 8 million and 10 million, depending on what you can fathom from the IRFU accounts. And they, they would be one of the best funded, going up against the Saracens team, who've obviously had to strip themselves fairly bare after the, the wage cut punishment. Five or six top players left on loan, others have gone. So in terms of budgets in that game, the Leinster budget was more. And, you, and they aren't the only Pro 14 team whose playing budget is bigger than the English clubs. You could look at the Scarlets and Munster, Edinburgh and Glasgow, not far behind. So there's no definite there. I think the one that's interesting for me, and I don't know what you think about this, Matt, and yourself, Ben, as well. Previous years, every year, the quarterfinals of Europe come after the Six Nations, pretty much just a couple of weeks after it. So the top players in those teams are hardened in terms of the physicality and intensity that the Six Nations brings. They come right off the back of that. This time, they've come purely off the back of their domestic leagues. In theory, the Pro 14 playoffs is the apex of that league. That should prepare you better than, than any other part of the season in terms of that league. And yet, when it came up against teams from other leagues, the other leagues look more battle-hardened. So I think it's fair to say that the different structure and the different timing was pertinent. But there's not one hard and fast decision of rule, but it's very interesting to look at all the factors. Yeah. It's a good job Leinster arrested Johnny Sexton for the Pro 14 final, isn't it? Oh, I knew that was going to come up. Well, I mean... Oh, he's vindicated. Well, the, <laughs> the, other, the other thing on that, Matt, is if you think about it, over recent years, the Irish have had a very clear system of, of gearing up and preparing themselves completely focused on, on in Europe. So they've used all the games leading up to that to either to play players when they need to play them or to rest them when they need to rest them to get them fresh. That's the whole momentum of this season. There's been a different momentum now because you've had the playoffs thrown into it. So the old ways which they've based themselves around have been thrown out of kilter. And I think mm. that's another factor to it as well. Yeah, I think the English sides are, are probably the best prepared of the lot for these games just purely because their league has been going you know, for, for the last sort of seven or eight weeks. Um, and they've been playing regular, you know, top-end competitive rugby uh, f for that entire period. Uh, you know, I, I know, you know, like you touched on, the Pro 14 came back and I, the playoffs are supposed to be the pinnacle of that league. Um, but ultimately, you know, the teams were still only four games into their season, whereas English teams are probably seven or eight games into their restart at this point. Um, so I think... You know, Saracens were probably better prepared for that game than Leinster in terms of being battle-hardened, as you said. 
Um, you know, the, the Toulouse one is a is a bit of a um, a bit of a different one to, to try and wrap your head around. I think you just look at that and say that Toulouse were just rather far better side on the day, and you know they've got an absolute superstar in Cheslin Colby who who just could do things, you know, and, and was a flash of magic that can turn the game. So you know, I think the English sides by and large are probably best prepared to to take these European competitions by storm. Um, it'd be interesting to see how the semis go. Well, the interesting thing with Saracens, they actually did. To Len- they did a Leinster on Leinster because if you look at it, they've had I think five or six games in the last four weeks, and they've mixed and matched their selection. They've put the Toji in one of them and the Vunapola in another because they're relegated anyway. The, the, the games didn't matter in terms of their position, but they just used those matches to gradually get the team ready. Whereas Leinster, although yes, Sexton didn't play, they've not had that opportunity. They've not had the same build-up to Europe as they usually do. Um, and just at the end of the day, I suppose maybe a few Leinster supporters did get a little bit carried away with the um, unbeaten record because when you're up against a team that's got Etoje, George, Vincent Koch and the Vunapola brothers in its pack, you should never write them off. I, I think the point you make about the, the whole sort of jumping board of the Six Nations, that's that's a really valid point because if you think, you know, Leinster have won, what, is it 25 games on the bounce? across the last 16 months, a lot of those in the Pro 14. And then they come up against Saracens and, well, the first 40 minutes, you know, they, they were completely caught cold, weren't they? Well, there is a wider argument here, isn't there? Is it fair to perhaps say, is the Pro 14 sufficient preparation for Leinster in terms of them being stretched and pushed all the way because they are so dominant in it? Mm. There is one easy solution to all of this, you know, Matt and Ben. That will do away with all the discussions and do away with all the arguments. British and Irish League. <laughs> That's another podcast episode. Isn't it? it's, all right, though. it's funny that because actually I was looking through sort of the Irish papers this morning and th- their response is get more South Africans. Uh, you know, <sighs> it's 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 been been the cheaters, been the Southern Kings as as it's sort of rumored to happen. And get the bulls, get the stormers, get the sharks, and then we'll have. I think one one writer said, you know, then we'll face the sort of blitz defence that, that the French and the Irish bring at us, which you know I think you've you've written about it in the past, haven't you, Matt? You know, it's the Super Rugby lesson, isn't it? You, That's a recipe you don't, you don't, for disaster. You don't keep expanding for expansion's sake, and then you you know you get to the point where you've got a bloated league with yeah, different continents and everything, like don't you? Uh, I don't like it for the league. It, whether it's better for you know preparing players and that is, is a different discussion, but it will be a disaster for the league, I think. Ultimately, it all depends what CBCC is the best means of marketing the league and the marketing rugby in the, in the, over the next three or four years. If the, the key thing for me is do they decide to go down a South African route with a view to getting the Springboks into the Six Nations or do they decide to go down a British and Irish league? And it's a watershed sliding doors decision for them to make. It's huge. It's this huge moment for the game up here. What what happens in the next few Biggest years? Biggest moment in the food game in Welsh rugby since 1998 when we turned down six places in the English league. Mm. Biggest moment since then. It's been a long time coming, hasn't it? Decision, decision, a decision that was the worst in the history of Welsh rugby. <laughs> there have been some bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good competition there. Okay, we'll we'll touch on one final point, I think, in the podcast, um, which is a sort of nicer moment, which we saw pictures of Willis Halaholo back in training. 
mm. last week, looking like he's enjoying himself. Obviously, it's, it's a year on since he, he, he nearly won a Wales cap, um, only to sort of you know, do, do his cruciate ligaments. And then missed out the Barbarians match. He's been out. Reconstructive knee surgery, been out for a year. He's now back training. Hoping to be back in time for the Pro 14 resumption in October. Wales have six matches. How do we see him figuring in terms of the the the, the centre pecking order? Obviously, it's it's been sort of one in one out, hasn't it? In terms of Wales's centre pecking order, Hadley Parks has gone. Nick Tompkins has come in. Where, where does Hallahola feature now? I, I think could. What do you think, Matt? I was thinking could it come down once fully fit to either him or Johnny Williams. Yeah, it's probably fair. You know, you assume they're going to try and go for four centres. I think he needs four centres for the for a campaign like the one that they're going to have coming up with all the games. Um, you know, I think he's a quality operator and offers something completely different to the others. Um, you know, he's you know I know Nick Tompkins is is agile, but Halaholo is different, isn't he? You know, he's that sort of hot stepping, offloading, shrugging off tackles kind of centre going forward. Um, in his you know when he's in his pomp. He's very difficult to defend against. Um, you know, you felt felt really sorry for him, didn't you? The way that transpired, um, especially after all the you know the row that erupted really over his selection and the, the sort of atmosphere around all that was very unpleasant at times. Um, but you know, what I will say is, you know, I've been following his his progress and throughout lockdown, he's been training really hard um, from bits I've seen. Um, I think he's a really highly motivated individual, um, motivated by various things. You know, we've written articles, you know, I've done interviews with him on his past when he was in New Zealand and the hardship that he went through there. Um, and then obviously, you know, the, the sort of criticism that he his selection received last year. Um, you know, we saw him send out a few tweets after that. Um, I just think he's a really motivated bloke. He's 30, which does count against him slightly. Um, you know, I think if he doesn't get involved, you know, we don't know how close to a return he is. Um, but, you know, you'd like to see him involved in this campaign. You know, if he did, if he's not involved in the Six Nations, then it, things begin to pass him by a little bit because of his age, perhaps. Um, but an absolute class operator. Johnny Williams is in the mix, as Simon said. So it's probably between those two. I think you, you, Jonathan Davis, Owen Watkins and Nick Tompkins are nailed on. Um, and then if you're going to take a fourth one, uh, you're looking at Johnny Williams or or Willis. Yeah, I think I'd agree. I think it was interesting with Halla Hollow. If you look how he did the injury, it was a classic Halla Hollow sidestep and his just mm. knee just went from under him. And the hope will have to be that when he comes back, he's still got structural strength there to do that because his feet and his movement, you know, lateral sideways movement is such a key part of his game. Um, but you're right. I mean, he, he's no spring chicken now. The years are passing by, so he really needs to come back from this injury fully, fully firing to, if he's going to force his way in. But I like watching him play. Never quite know what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. There are a few other ones coming through as well. I mean, I, I really do like the look of Max Llewellyn coming through. I think he's got a big future. Gareth Llewellyn's boy hasn't had a huge amount of game time. He's picked up a few injuries. But he's got a lot going for him in terms of he's got the size, he's got the pace, and he's got the offloading. Um, I think he's one who could really come through the, over the coming year. Yeah, you've got Kieran Williams as well at the Ospreys, of course. Different um, kind, isn't he? Yeah. yeah, very different kind of centre as well. But with Salah Holo as well, I think Pivak's going to want to see him play. 
Um, I don't think you can just take you know take him back straight back in into the squad. I think he's gonna if he's gonna play in this campaign. Um, I don't know where he is on it in terms of being ready, but I think he's gonna have to get you know two maybe three games under his belt um, before the autumn. So that's pretty much every Pro 14 game before they play against France. Um, if the league begins when we expect it to. So, yeah, I think he's got to play before the campaign. Um, so it's just really up to how close he is to, to being ready. But, you know, looks like he's, he's in training again, making tackles and things like that. So it does look good. It's going to be tight, isn't it? But you never know. Okay, we'll um, keep an eye on that. And I think that's it for the podcast. I think we just about covered everything. Obviously, we'll be back next Monday. You can catch all the latest news in the coming week on Wales Online. Wales Online.